Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, back from holiday uh, last week and here again this week, is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, last week, Simon, we were talking about the possibilities of seeing a lot of fundraising, and this week there's plenty to talk about on that count. But let's kick off as normal by uh, just having a quick look at what happened in the market this week. Well, it's been a positive week for the market. The wider UK market in the form of the FTSE All Share probably ended up about 0.2% or so. Uh, Investment companies did a little bit better than that, actually. They were up about 0.7%, and that represented the third consecutive week of relative outperformance by the investment companies sector. Although, as we've noted in weeks gone by, they have lagged the wider UK market so far this year. So the FTSE All Shares up just over 15%, whereas investment companies are about 11% or so. In terms of the sector average discount, um, that just widened fractionally this week. So it started about 2.1% and ended at 2.2%. But it's still a little bit tighter than we've seen for the rest of this year. So the average sector average discount comes in about 3.2% year to date. But an interesting week as always for the market. So I think this time last week we talked about uh, Jackson Hall. I think at that stage we were waiting for the big speech and we duly found out through that that uh, the Fed, the US Federal Reserve, are intend to taper bond purchases before the year end. And that's earlier than had been expected, although the market seemed to take it in its stride. Towards the end of this week, we did have some poor US employment data out. And I think this just reflects the fact there is still huge amounts of uncertainty. There's a lot of commentary around the impact of the Delta variant and what that would mean. A lot of talk about shortages and maybe temporary price pressures. I think there was some data out from the European Union that inflation there had hit its highest level in about a decade or so. So it's still big question marks for the market to answer in the weeks and months ahead. But so far, so good. We haven't seen any kind of serious sell-off, as we've mentioned in past weeks. And each time we go another week, we move further towards a what may become a consensus view that uh, the bull market goes on in equities. We shall see. Let's uh, start off, actually, by talking about some index changes. Before we get on to fundraising, there's uh, some corporate news. and We might as well start off with the index changes. This is the quarterly review by FTSE. Which investment trusts have been affected by that, Simon? Yes, well, a number have been. So um, there were no changes with regard to the FTSE 100. There aren't that many investment companies in the FTSE 100, to be honest. I mean, obviously, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, Pershing Square are the two obvious exceptions. But there are an awful lot of investment companies in the mid caps of the FTSE 250 and the small cap. And this week, we discovered that there will be some changes. So Temple Bar in Civitas Social Housing, they will drop from the FTSE 250 to the small cap. And that reflects just their share price moves over the previous three months. Coming the other way is BlackRock Throgmorton. And that's uh, had a very strong period of performance. In fact, its share price is up 14% since the last FTSE quarterly review. And we've also got two investment companies entering the FTSE All Share and therefore the FTSE Small Cap for the first time. And unsurprisingly, these are new issues. So Seraphin Space Investment Trust, which raised $178 million in its IPO in July, and Taylor Maritime Investments, which has also IPO'd back in May and actually has performed well subsequently. 
Just on that final point, I mean, it's interesting, there's no kind of requirement to have a, a track record of performance to get into these indices. It's just a question of uh, uh, whether you qualify in terms of the uh, amount of assets you have and uh, presumably also the liquidity of the shares. Are those the two main factors that are taken into account? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. So to get into the FTSE all share or the FTSE small cap on this review, um, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I'm going to say about £190 million or so market cap. Um, to get promoted into the mid cap, I mean, well, BlackRock, Rock Morton, for instance, I think it's got a market cap verging on about a billion pounds now. So it's that kind of quantum that you need. Um, but liquidity is also important. So there have been a number of uh, investment companies that possibly would have hoped to have been uh, promoted into the FTSE All Share. So an example of that would have been RTW Venture, which is a name that we have talked about in a months gone by. And uh, it appears as if that particular investment company uh, didn't qualify on liquidity grounds. So size-wise, it ticks the box, but it just hasn't traded enough shares. I recall that RTW Ventures is uh, moving its market listing, as it were. It was in one place and it's moved back to the London market or was proposing to move to the London market. I can't remember exactly what it said. Uh, but that in itself is not enough to make a difference. You still have to take the liquidity into account. So yes, you do have to be listed on the main market. So obviously, uh, those investment companies that are traded on AIM or the specialist fund market or fund segment, they are not included. But even when you do make that move onto the main market, there's still the size and liquidity considerations uh, come into play. Okay, so let's move on to a couple of corporate events or announcements, if you like. And we'll start off with the Acorn Income Fund. That's uh, AIF. What's the latest there? Well, a really interesting development, actually. I mean, just to remind you, back in May, the board of Acorn Income Fund announced proposals to appoint BMO Global Asset Management and adopt a sustainable global equity income investment strategy, uh, targeting a yield of about 3.5%. And then at the start, or early on in August, another announcement came out that the board declared that they'd received further interest from managers regarding the future of the company. An alternative proposal to the BMO proposal may represent, as the board said, a more uh, suitable proposition, which obviously raised quite a lot of questions. It wasn't clear whether a rival proposal had come in on a similar basis. But actually, this week, we learned that, in fact, the board are now proposing a scheme of reconstruction and voluntary liquidation. And this follows consultations with shareholders. And I think that's the key point. So what does this mean? Well, there will be a full or partial rollover into an open-ended fund, Unicorn UK Income Fund, on an NEV for NEV basis. Unicorn UK Income Fund is managed by Fraser McKenzie and Simon Moon, and they are responsible for the UK small cap portfolio of Acorn Income Fund. So that represents continuity. In addition to that rollover, shareholders will be offered a cash exit option as well. So basically, Acorn Income Fund, uh, as an investment trust company, will be no more. It also has uh, zero dividend preference shares in circulation. They were coming to the end of their life in February next year, but they will be repaid at their final capital entitlement on the completion of this deal. And that's expected in late October or November. But a very interesting development. I, I don't think many people foresaw this one. But um, I think it's a reflection, as I mentioned earlier, that Obviously, when they sat down with shareholders and ran through their proposals, that they obviously got quite a clear response that uh, shareholders were not minded to support them. They didn't like what the original plan was. So with a rollover, does that suggest that most of the shareholders will be voting for cash? Or do you think they will find the Unicorn UK Income Fund a more attractive uh, solution than the one they were being offered before with uh, BMO? 
or will it be driven mainly by tax considerations? No, it's a good point. Tax is always a consideration on these rollover and reconstruction plans. And just to be clear on that, invariably people have or people can have deferred capital gains tax liabilities. Therefore, um, a rollover can be an attractive option. But in addition to that, I think the guidance or the statement around this made it clear that a number of shareholders through that consultation process had made it clear that they favoured the investment approach adopted by Unicorn and the two managers I mentioned. The Unicorn UK Income Fund has a 67% commonality with the UK small cap portfolio um, of Acorn Income Fund. And clearly a number of shareholders wanted to continue that type of investment approach. And actually the Unicorn UK Income Fund, which is a bit of a mouthful, uh, has actually got quite a strong track record as well. Right. So it's all a little puzzling, but uh, I dare say that if the shareholders had their say, they've got the outcome that they want. And we'll be interested to see how many people do opt for the different options. If the fund they're rolling over into is, uh, has a similar portfolio, or very much in common, and they quite like that, that does raise the question why the board would have wanted to wind up the thing anyway, or move the mandate somewhere else. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Acorn Income, I mean, there was a question mark over its future. It had traded out on a wide discount. So the discount has been over the previous 12 months, 15%. It isn't the largest investment trust company, so its market cap at the moment is about £66 million. It has this uh, income element, as the name would suggest, so it yields 5.5%, and it has a dual portfolio. So there's a UK small cap portfolio that uh, Unicorn are responsible for, and then there was a kind of fixed income bond portfolio that Premier Mighton ran. So it was a slightly unusual structure, I think probably they felt that the discount was entrenched. It wasn't clear how it was going to grow, and therefore they looked for other solutions. And you know, clearly, there's been a lot of talk about uh, sustainable investment, and it does seem that the flavour of the month, to a degree at least. But obviously, this proposal's fallen over. We saw the IPO of the Lion Trust uh, Investment Trust, which failed to gather traction. So I suspect um, cynics may suggest that the the whole idea of sustainable investment may be overblown, or perhaps the demand is not as great as would first appear. Well, that's a, certainly an interesting point. Let's move on then and talk about third point investors. This is another one that looks like becoming one of these uh, sagas that we've <laughs> become familiar with. We know there's uh, been action by the asset value investors and, and other shareholders looking for some action from the board. But uh, I think as you rather predicted, Simon, before the latest attempt to uh, persuade the board to do something the board doesn't want to do uh, has not worked. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So this was second time lucky for asset value investors and three other shareholders. They were trying to uh, requisition an EGM. The first attempt got knocked back by the board, and that's exactly what's happened with the the second attempt. So um, this was a proposed advisory vote, uh, and the board have declined that requisition request on the grounds that that vote would have no legal effects. And clearly, as an advisory vote, that does intuitively make sense. But the board have also tried to get on the front foot and they've you know, restated their discount uh, control package. They have been making attempts to narrow the discount on this particular investment company. So already on the table, we had a two-part tender offer in 2024 and 2027 if the discount uh, was wider than 10% and 7.5% respectively at that time. In addition to that, there's this exchange mechanism which will be happening in uh, October, is my recollection, and that's the ability to switch into the master fund at a 7.5% discount. Now, what they've done is they've come back and said, actually, they're minded to run the same exchange facility in 2022, but this time it would be done at a 2% discount to NAV. 
So again, there's a whole series of measures here that the board believe will have the impact of reducing or narrowing the discount. And certainly it has narrowed in over the last few years. It's about 15% or so at the moment. So the board can say that they are being proactive. They are taking measures to, to move this on. Um, it'll be very interesting to see what asset value investors come back with now. One suspects they won't leave this one alone. I'm sure that's right. That's a very safe prediction, I would think. Okay, so let's move on and talk about some of this fundraising. There's quite a lot this week, as I mentioned already. So we'll, uh, we'll try and get through them all without uh, getting too bogged down in the details. Most of these are in the alternative asset space, as usual. But uh, we'll kick off with Aquila European Renewables Income Fund, AERS and AERI are the tickers. They're looking to raise some more money. They are indeed. They're looking to raise 100 million euros, to be more precise, though they have said they could increase that to a maximum of 150 million euros. So the issue price will be at one euro and three cents, and that represents a 5% premium to their NEV at the end of June and a 4% discount to the closing share price on the 27th of August, so i.e. just before they made this announcement. The placing closes on the 9th of September with the new shares beginning to trade on the 14th of September. So we'll see how this one goes. I mean, they've made it clear that they've fully deployed or committed all their available capital, and that includes their 40 million euros revolving credit facility. Unsurprisingly, they have a pipeline of acquisitions, uh, which they provided some detail of. But just to remind people, this particular investment company, the IPO back in June 2019, when they raised 154 million euros, they last came to the market in October last year, uh, and at that stage, they raised about 128 million at a not dissimilar price. So that was at one euro and 0.0375 cents. So a price just slightly north of the of the issue price here. But clearly, a lot of demand still for renewable income type assets. Indeed, there are. And let's move on and talk about an, a second one. There, this is called Blackfinch Renewable European Income Trust. And they're looking to raise money. We haven't heard from them before, so this would be an IPO. What can you tell us about this one? Yes, uh, an interesting one, actually. They're looking to raise up to £300 million through their IPO, and that would be to be invested in a diversified portfolio of renewable energy infrastructure assets in Europe. They're looking to pay a target dividend initially between 1 and 3p in their first financial year. That will increase to 5 to 5.5p for their second financial year and thereafter 6p per annum with a view to increasing that progressively. They've got a seed portfolio lined up and that includes 21 construction-ready solar assets, of which 19 are in Italy, two in the UK. Uh, and that seed portfolio has an enterprise value of £232 million. In addition to that, they have a further pipeline of £500 million and that includes operational and construction-ready uh, and that's under negotiation. But they're looking to kind of differentiate themselves from some of the existing product by focusing on what they describe as less crowded markets. Uh, and apparently those are uh, Italy, Portugal, Poland, the Czech Republic, Austria and Hungary with uh, just some exposure to the UK. But uh, a minimum of 50% will be invested in wind, solar and hydro assets with the balance in other forms of renewable assets. But the net shareholder total return target is 8% per annum over the medium to long term. Right. So that's pretty much in line with most of the peer groups. So they're obviously hoping that their appeal will be to people who want to invest in, in Europe. They're not predicting, as far as I can tell from those numbers, that the returns will be materially different because they're in um, countries that haven't been targeted so much before. But uh, it's pretty much bang in line with the rest of the sector. Is that right? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that, that kind of target return, that kind of yield, perhaps the 6p fully invested might be a little bit heavier than some we've seen, but only marginally so. I mean, broadly speaking, this appears to be absolutely in line with its peers. I mean, Blackfinch as an organisation, I've got to be honest, I haven't come across before, but apparently their name is inspired by Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, uh, discovered on their website, uh, because apparently he's observing the finches on the uh, Galapagos beaches. And so this is all about adapting, evolving and thriving. So again, that seems to be their USP. Yeah, well, thank you for that useful bit of information there, Simon. I was not aware of that. Moving on, let's talk about Cordiant. We're taking these in alphabetical order rather than by sector, but uh, let's take the next one, the Cordiant Digital Infrastructure. Cord, C-O-R-D, is the ticker. We know they've come to the market recently, but they've got some news about their subscription shares. Yeah, that's right. So they IPO'd back in February. They raised £370 million, so a very successful IPO. At the time, they also made a bonus issue of £46 million subscription shares. And basically, we've seen a number of these already exercised. And just recently, just in the last week, we had a further 21.3 million subshares exercised at a pound a pop. So there are six and a half or 6.6 to be more precise million subscription shares that remain in issue. These may be exercised in February and August each year until February 2026. Uh, and the next subscription date is therefore February 2022. But the price at that stage will be 109p per share. So basically, that you can see why there's been a little bit of rush to exercise at 100p, which is the, the price up until now. But um, for those people who have held the subshares with the, the share price of the ordinary share class trading out at about 113p, you can see why it might have been attractive to uh, exercise this. Indeed, you might. But uh, I suppose the effect is that it must dilute any existing shareholders who don't hold the subscription shares. Would that be right? Does that follow mechanically from the process? That's absolutely correct. So uh, although subscription shares can be quite an attractive piece of paper, um, they have to be paid for by some means. And, and effectively, it means a dilution from ordinary shareholders. So if you hold both, um, it might not necessarily be a problem. But if you just hold the ordinary shares, then effectively, there's a dilutive element in there. Yeah. So often they sound attractive. They're kind of things that make them sound attractive, little you know, added bonus. But in practice, they're not necessarily going to uh, help you once they're exercised. But they're quite a good marketing ploy, I've always thought. And uh, some people like them. So let's move on and talk about uh, Home REIT, H-O-M-E, unsurprisingly, is the ticker. What news have we heard from them? Well, they gave an update on their portfolio, which was valued at 328 million at the end of July, with an average valuation net initial yield of just short of 5.6%. Um, since the IPO in October last year, they've generated a total return of 8.5%. Um, and they provided some insight in terms of their portfolio activity. And certainly at the end of July, they provided beds for 3,846 people in 711 properties across 81 different local authorities. So that's where they are at the moment, or certainly were at the end of July. In addition to that, they've announced plans to raise uh, additional capital. They're targeting a gross issue proceeds of around about £262 million. The issue will be done at 109p per share. Uh, and this will be backed up by a 12-month placing program as well. Effectively, they want to build the portfolio out, acquire further homes, and they're in advanced legal negotiations on a pipeline that's valued at about £400 million, with an average acquisition yield of 5.95%. So the placing will close on the 22nd of September, on the initial placing at least, with the new shares due to be admitted to trading on or around the 27th of September. 
So, as I recall, this one was targeted as uh, involved in providing accommodation for homeless people. What about this, uh, another one we can now talk about called Responsible Housing REIT, which is a newcomer or potential newcomer to the market. What do they do and what are they hoping to uh, achieve by way of funding? Yeah, so they announced their intention to float, not dissimilar to Home REIT, uh, it would appear. Their investment objective is to generate consistent and sustainable income-based return from the provision of supported housing, accommodation assets and aligned sectors. So this fund will be managed by BMO. The lead portfolio managers will be Guy Glover and Emma Gulliver. And they're looking to raise up to £250 million via a placing offer for subscription and intermediaries offer. And the idea, very similar to Home REIT, properties will be let on a tailored leases, variety of uh, registered charities, housing associations, community interest companies and other regulated organisations. So the idea is that it has a minimum annual dividend target of about 5% and that will be once fully invested. And the NAV return target will be a minimum of about 7.5% per annum. So that's the plan. The prospectus is expected to be published in mid-September, so in a few weeks' time, and the results of the issue will be announced in late September with the new shares uh, to be admitted to trading at the end of the month. Right. So this is an interesting emerging new sector for the investment company space. But of course, there have been these issues around the regulator and so on, which has affected Civitas Social Housing. Uh, You mentioned them earlier. They've derated a little bit recently because of some regulatory announcements. And I think uh, it also affects uh, one or two other companies like Triple Point. Obviously, this has not deterred people from going into this sector. What do you think is the uh, likely market reaction going to be to this one? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think if you look at Home REIT, which, as we mentioned, came to the market in October last year, raised just over 240 million. I mean, we've got it on a premium rating at the moment. That's trading on premium about 8% or so, which is quite a healthy level. And it's been consistently trading on, on a premium since its launch. And I think the return profile in terms of that target return, in terms of the dividend yield that it can offer, is clearly attractive. But in addition to that, I think there is a demand for uh, investment companies that can demonstrate they are doing a social good and providing homeless accommodation uh, across the UK would clearly tick that box. I'm sure they would argue that their counterparts, so the registered charities, the housing associations and so on and so forth, uh, are a different kettle of fish uh, perhaps than uh, the ones that have fallen foul of the regulator, though it is still clearly uh, a key consideration. But uh, it'd be very interesting. I don't think it's any coincidence necessarily that we've got the two funds out there trying to raise money at the same time. Clearly, for responsible housing REIT, they have to attract a certain degree of capital in order to justify their IPO. Uh, whereas Home REIT, obviously, they've got a pipeline of assets, but arguably, uh, you know, it's not as critical to them. But it'd be very interesting to see how both fare in the weeks ahead. So if I'm right about this, I mean, most of the trusts that are already listed in this sector in social housing, they are offering uh, kind of yields of between, what, 4 and 5%, something like that. Though I see that the one on Civitas Social Housing has, has gone up, obviously, because the shares have sold off, as we saw, and they've been ejected out of the index. But I, I guess the real attraction of these things is ultimately they are basically generating uh, income from the state or from local authorities. And that's regarded as a relatively, obviously, a secure source of income. No, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the idea is that even if the the, the counterparty should uh, at any stage get in any difficulty, that standing behind them 
is a, a, a local authority or a, a housing association and that accommodation will continue to be provided for those people who quite clearly need it. So I think there is a kind of safety net there. This this is how the theory goes and you know we'll see in practice how it all plays out. But I certainly suspect that's one of the attractions of this asset class. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about Schroeder BSC Social Impact Trust, talking about trusts that are seeking to do good for society or claim to be doing so. That's SBSI and uh, thinking about a, a further funding exercise, I think. Yeah, that's right. So what they announced this week is that they are effectively, I think there's an investment underway, there's a co-investment secured loan that's in the process of completing. When that does so, that will see the net proceeds from their IPO uh, in December last year. They'll see those proceeds fully committed. There is a strong pipeline of further investment opportunities. And so, as you know, they now intend to consult investors, uh, which will obviously include their existing shareholders regarding a possible equity issue under its placing program. So just to remind people, this one raised £75 million back in December, at the end of last year. It's obviously a Schroeder's fund, but Big Society Capital, the BSC in the name, and they are responsible for the day-to-day management of the portfolio. And again, as you observed, this is very much attempting to address some of the social challenges across the UK, and they do that by investing in private market impact funds and co-investments that deliver measurable impacts. And that's their kind of big driver here. It's not just a case of putting their money where it possibly may do some good. They want to be able to measure the impact of their capital. Right. So one can perhaps make a distinction between, we talked about ESG earlier on in the broader sort of categorization of ESG, which includes you know ordinary equities as well as other things. And these trusts, which are targeting something rather more specific and they seem to be uh, finding more demand or at least they're hoping there's more demand out there than uh, just general ESG focused trust. Would that make sense? Is that a sensible thing to say? Yes, I think so. I mean, ESG frankly means different things to different people. You know, if you avoid tobacco and oil companies, you could be said to be ticking the ESG box. But if you are really quite focused on this and you want to be able to, as we've discussed, benefit society, then I think it's got to be more than just uh, investing in accounting software companies that don't have any carbon emissions. You know, that you could argue that investing in social housing or providing homeless accommodation is, you know, very much benefiting society. But to be able to demonstrate and measure that, I think that is increasingly important. There's a lot of disclosure around this kind of thing. Uh, and I would expect to see more of that as we go forward. Okay, so a lot happening in that particular sector. And let's finish off with a couple of uh... Renewable energy or energy efficiency trusts also raising money. We know there's been a lot of that around this year. Let's uh, start off with SDCL Energy Efficiency Income, SEIT, and they are looking to raise some more money as well. That's right. They're looking to raise £175 million, and that's under their uh, 12-month insurance program up to 650 million new shares. But this initial issue will be at an offer price of 110 spot 5p. That represents an 8% premium to their NAV as at the end of March and a 6% discount to the the share price just before they made the announcement. What will they do with the proceeds? Should they be successful and raise that money? Well, they will pay down their debt, which stood about 68 million at the end of August. And they've also got a pipeline of opportunities that are valued at more than 600 million pounds. So they have uh, certainly a lot of prospective investments being lined up. But just to remind people, they last came to the market to raise additional capital back in February this year. At that stage, they raised 160 million 
Uh, they were targeting 100 million, so it was oversubscribed. They increased the amount of money they were looking to raise, and that was done at 106p. So this represents a step up in terms of the share price issuance. But we'll find out towards the end of September how this one fares. The prospectus will be published very shortly, actually, with shareholders able to vote on the proposals on the 20th of September with the, any new shares beginning to trade on the 21st of September. Okay. And meanwhile, there's also some more funding news from the Renewables Infrastructure Group. That's TRIG, T-R-I-G is the ticker. What are they uh, doing? So they've announced that they are looking to issue new shares at 124p per share. That represents a 4% discount or so to their closing share price ahead of the announcement and about an 8.5% premium to the NAV as at the end of June. Yet again, they have a, a pipeline of investment opportunities, and that includes potentially a portfolio of solar assets on the Iberian Peninsula. But it wasn't entirely clear how much money they were looking to raise. They have a capacity under their issuance program of about 405 million shares. And so if all of those shares were taken up under this offer, that would represent £502 million fundraising. So uh, we'll see if it comes in anywhere like as high as that. But the placing is expected to close on the 14th of September uh, with the results announced the following day and the new shares will begin to trade on the 17th of September. Looking at the renewable energy sector now, I mean, it has become a very substantial uh, sector. I haven't totted up how much money there is in it now, but there's a considerable amount. And uh, despite all this issuance, looking at the AIC numbers anyway, I don't know if yours agree, I think virtually every single one is trading at a premium. They're, they range from sort of 5% to 15% or something of that order. And they're all yielding around uh, 5 6% still. So um, this is still proving very popular, despite there were some concerns earlier this year that uh, maybe some of these trusts have got a little too expensive. What, what do you think is going on there, Simon? No, I think your comments are spot on. I mean, we did see a little bit of premium contraction. I think we talked about that at the time, i.e. some of the premium levels uh, were possibly a little on the high side and we saw them come down. But the point is they are still trading on premium ratings with very few, if any, exceptions. So clearly there is demand. The yields are clearly attractive to investors and you're, and you're right, probably at 5% or so on average in that particular peer group. You know, So they offer attractive yields. The return profiles have been strong. And again, it probably addresses some of the more ESG, social responsible investing type demands that investors have. The fact that you are looking to back renewable energy sources or renewable infrastructure has, has clearly uh, chimed with a number of investors. And I don't think that shows any signs of changing in the near term. Is there a correlation between the size of these funds and the kind of premium on which they trade? Is there any kind of direct relationship there that we can talk about? Or is it uh, it's all down to the quality of the assets and the, uh, the quality of the income? So TRIG, so the Renewables Infrastructure Group is probably on a premium of uh, 12% or so. And that's certainly one of the larger ones in market cap terms. That's at 2.6 billion now market cap is just ahead of Greencoat UK Wind. So very similar size, 2.6 billion. And that's actually creeped down a little bit. So it's probably about 8% or so. So, I mean, I think what you could say is that many investors will like the larger funds. They offer greater liquidity and therefore uh, easier to kind of move around position sizes in the secondary market, although they're not adverse to supporting some of the smaller funds as well. And we've seen that in the energy efficiency space and some of the battery funds, which are much smaller than the aforementioned funds. So despite their size, they still are attracting decent monies when they've come back to the marketplace to raise additional capital. 
So I think size is a consideration, but I think most people seem relatively relaxed on the basis that these things offer growth opportunities. So even if you were to support a smaller investment company at launch, there is still the prospect for decent growth here. But just looking at the one-year share price performance of the sector, you know, most of them have basically gone sideways. We talked about the change in the rating earlier this year. So uh, most of them have not actually produced much in the way of share price return over the uh, the past 12 months. I make an exception for the energy storage uh, trusts. But you think investors are basically still looking at the longer term attractions of these trusts and they're not too worried about the recent share price performance, which is obviously coming below their target. Yeah, you make a good point. I think you can't overlook the yield, though. The fact that these investment companies have sustained their dividends uh, all through the last year or so, when clearly across the wider marketplace, we saw quite significant dividend cuts, although um, a number of operating companies are now bringing back their dividends. So these investment companies sustain those dividends and continue to, to grow them as well. And the target dividends that are on the table uh, all seem to be at, uh, if not above inflation, certainly around that kind of level. I think that's one of the key attractions for investors, the fact that you are getting income and growing income and in line with inflation over the long term. And I suspect that's one, one of the reasons why they continue to back the sector. And finally, on the issue of fundraising, uh, Simon, we've obviously seen a lot of the announcements all come this week. People come back from the beach, as we said. Do you think there's going to be more fundraising coming still in the, in the weeks ahead? Uh, it's going to be the normal autumn season where a lot of things come to market? That would be my expectation. I mean, it's been a very, very strong year for fundraising in general. Obviously, that's skewed to subsectors such as infrastructure as discussed. But I would expect to see that continue. And I think to that end, we are likely to see more announcements in the next few weeks or in the next month or so, not least because it does take a little bit of time to get these things up and running, particularly IPOs, actually. Bearing in mind that we've got now three, four months to the end of the calendar year and not an awful lot tends to happen in December, I'd expect the next month or so to be quite busy in terms of announcements. I think more to discuss between you and me over the uh, month or so ahead. Splendid. Well, we'll be here to do just that. So now we can move on and talk about results. There aren't that many results. We've heard a lot about fundraising, but uh, rather less about results this particular week. Uh, but we can kick off with one of the trusts that's become uh, well-established in the global equity sector, and that is Midwind International, NWY, uh, and they produced their annual results to the 30th of June. That's right, uh, in which time their NAV total return was up 24.3%, that compared with 24.6% for the MSCI All Country World Index. In share price terms, a little bit better, actually, up 27.3% as their premium rating increased, and actually, they issued 9.6 million new shares in that year, raising £66 million. But an interesting set of results, both for the chairman's report and actually the investment manager's report. So the chairman is a gentleman called Russell Napier that some people might be familiar with. He's, I think, you could call him many things, but a Scottish economist uh, probably fits the bill. But certainly his outlook section of his chairman's report is well worth a, a read. And in terms of the investment managers, where it's Simon Edelston and Alex Illingworth, and they take a kind of thematic approach to global equities, which is always interesting and an interesting read this time. So in terms of what's worked for them in this year, well, energy transition materials, that particular theme, uh, that performed well while building the future saw some success as well. Online services, which was quite a big theme for them, about 17% of the portfolio. As you might imagine, it's a number of technology companies and they uh, reviewed those on valuation grounds during the year. And that resulted in the sale of some of the smaller 
less developed kind of businesses. They've also sold out of um, some of their Chinese tech companies as well, TencentJD.com and Alibaba. And that was on concern of increased Chinese regulation. So a bit of chat around that. And also their healthcare costs theme, which is about 8% of their portfolio. That didn't perform quite so well in that time. And they've actually sold out some of the drug producers, but continue to focus on healthcare insurance and medical equipment. So a very interesting approach to global equities. Obviously, they have a, a growth bent, uh, possibly not to the same extent as their, their peers at Bailey Gifford, but they have performed very strongly during their time. I mean, this is an Artemis fund. And since it moved there, I'm going to say about 2016 or so, maybe 2015, they have outperformed their benchmark. Indeed, they have. Okay, so let's move on and talk about the half-year results from BH Macro. That's a BHMG and BHMU. And as we know, BH Macro is one of two hedge fund investment trusts managed by uh, Brevin Howard. And uh, after a, quite a protracted process, they are merging or combining at least. So these are the results to the 30th of June. What did they actually do during this period while all this was going on? <laughs> well, the, the sterling share class was up 1.2% in NAV terms in the US dollar. NAV was up 1.3%, but actually in share price terms, they were down slightly. So the sterling share class down about 4% and the US dollar share class down about 2.5%. And that reflected the derating that this investment company saw back in January when the fund manager turned around and said they wanted to increase their fees, which we've discussed possibly ad nauseum over recent months. But in terms of the, the, the portfolio, so leaving aside the kind of the corporate developments here, it is an interesting uh, report. They've been positioned for economic reflation higher and steeper interest rate curves, higher break-even inflation, a weakening of the US dollar, as well as a range of currencies, as well as higher commodity and equity prices. And all that kind of worked for them in this period, although it was partially offset by losses on Chinese currency depreciation and the fact that the emerging market interest rate trading uh, didn't work for them, as well as some of their precious metals exposure. So a quieter period, I think you could say, for BH Macro. But again, as we talked about, it was really the first half of last year when they really uh, earned their spurs, when they performed very, very strongly at a time when the market uh, was only going in one direction. Yeah, so people basically hold them as a defensive counter to any uh, sell-off in the equity markets, and uh, they've delivered that over time. And the shares are now, are they back now trading at a premium? Yes, is the answer. So the stunning share class is on about a 3 3.5% premium, not dissimilar level on the US dollar share class. Right. So after that derating because of all those proposals, the fees and the merger and everything else, it seems to have settled down and back trading at a premium where I think it was before. Okay, let's move on and talk about another interesting trust, which I probably won't pronounce correctly, but this is Boussard and Gavaudon, BGHL and BGHS. Not one we talk about a lot, but I think it's one with which uh, you have some knowledge, Sam. I wouldn't go that far, to be perfectly honest, but I can tell you that they had their half-year results up to the end of June in which time their euro NAV was up 4.4%, their sterling NAV up 3.4%. But you're right, it is a, a, an interesting fund. It's, it probably has quite a low profile, well, particularly compared to some of the other hedge funds that we have discussed on occasion. I mean, in this period, the performance reflects in part the impact of event-driven catalysts, uh, which generated value across both their equity and credit strategies, greater levels of corporate activity, uh, assisted performance, and the manager apparently remains confident about the portfolio and the unrealized embedded value contained therein. But the equity portfolio has been rebalanced away from value positions with no immediate apparent catalyst for revaluations towards more special situations 
where trigger events are more readily and immediately identifiable. But the discount on this one, well, it remains wide. I mean, it's uh, probably about 19% or so uh, at the moment. And this was noted in the results. And, and the fund apparently will continue a share buyback program, as well as uh, attempting to seek and attract new investors. So basically, it's in the sort of same camp as our friends, other hedge funds who are trying to reduce the discount. Um, but uh, they do something very different from what uh, the Brevin Howard funds have done. So while the Brevin Howard trusts, they trade at a premium. Some of these other big hedge fund investment trusts are still trading at discounts and they're all trying to reduce them. As we know from hearing from Bill Ackerman and Dan Loeb and all the, and all the rest of them. So interesting to see if they have any success with that program. Let's move on and talk about the results from Downing Renewables and Infrastructure, D-O-R-E. We've talked about a lot of fundraising in renewables and infrastructure. And how has this particular trust actually performed in its uh, latest half-year results? Yes, that's right. In fact, its first set of results, it only came to the market at the end of last year when it raised £123 million. So these were the half-year results to the 30th of June, in which time the NEV has increased by 2.3p uh, to take it to 100.2p. Clearly, very early days for this particular portfolio. They did say that they're getting the capital to work. Um, and in terms of the portfolio generation, that came in at 6.6% above expectations and operating profit 14.4% above expectations. They paid uh, an interim dividend of a penny, but possibly of more interest is the fact that the target dividend from the 1st of July 2021, so i.e. this year onwards, has been increased to 5p per annum. Uh, and the idea, I think, is they're looking to pay a quarterly dividend of 1.25p for the quarter ending September this year and thereafter. So as I mentioned, they're getting their capital to work. 83% of the IPO proceeds have now been invested, and that's ahead of their expectations. And they're also still trading at a premium, I imagine, are they? Yes, that's right. Probably about a 3% premium or so at the moment. Right. So not one of the, the bigger premiums in the sector, but there's early days for them, of course. Okay, so now we can move on finally to some uh, property results that have come out uh, with some news attached in one or two cases. And let's start off with regional REIT. That's RGL. This has been an interesting performer recently. Tell us what you can about that, Simon. Yeah, so this is an interesting development. We don't normally discuss something for the property funds when they make acquisitions or disposals, but I think this one is worthy of note. They announced this week that they're looking to acquire a portfolio of 31 assets from an outfit called Squarestone Growth. This is a portfolio worth $236 million, so a relatively substantial portfolio. Uh, it's very much an office-based portfolio. There's a few exceptions to that. It's located entirely outside of the M25, about 70% in England, uh, and most of the rest of it in Scotland and Wales. But a big portfolio, and they're actually looking to uh, issue new shares at NAV in order to fund this. So 84 million new shares will be issued. Um, they're also going to use some of their cash resources and additional borrowings to fund it as well. So um, following the admission of this, the consideration shares, so those shares that have been issued to acquire the portfolio, will represent about 16% of all the shares in issue, and they, that those shares will be subject to lock-ins. So interesting that they are um, kind of biting the bullet here, and they're looking to uh, invest in this big portfolio of essentially office-based assets uh, at a time when people are discussing whether the office has a future. Indeed, they seem to think that it does. So just to explain a bit more about how this issuance would work. I mean, the shares are trading at a discount. How is that going to affect the uh, the returns for the existing shareholders if they do this? 
So in NAV terms, it won't have any impact because it's issued on an NAV basis. So obviously, if it issued at a discount to the NAV, then that would have hit the ongoing ordinary shareholders valuation or certainly in NAV terms. That is not the case. Um, so it's issued at NAV. So the the vendors who receive these shares effectively take the heck out of their mark to market on this. But clearly, they, they're taking a longer term view and believe that that discount can narrow in within time. And in fact, that has been the direction of travel. If you look at the rating on this one, it's probably averaged a discount of 19% in the previous 12 months. Uh, and it closed this week on a 6% discount. So that has uh, been a material revaluation already. So this is quite a big vote of confidence in the, in the trust, basically, to be able to do this. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I would probably say it that way, to be perfectly honest. Um, I mean, as I mentioned, it's it's an interesting deal. Um, you know, some people could see it as an aggressive deal or progressive deal, whichever way you want to term it. But, um, you know, they're setting out their, their stall here. They believe clearly, as I mentioned, that uh, there is a future for office assets uh, in the UK. And they're quite happy to pick up a significant portfolio at this stage. Yeah, indeed. Well, that's a very interesting development. I've clocked that one. Let's move on and talk about Triple Point Social Housing REIT, where we've talked about the fundraising that's been going on in this sector. But here's a trust is actually producing some results. How did they do? Yep. So they had interim results out to the end of June. Um, their NAV per share was flat in that time, actually. But on a total return basis, it was up 2.4%. The portfolio was valued at £596 million at the end of June. And there's been um, certainly quite a bit of portfolio activity as well in the period. In terms of dividends, well, they came in at 2.6p. They were declared in respect of the period, and that was in line with their target for the financial year this year of 5.2p. And the dividend cover on an earnings run rate basis uh, was about 100%. So a positive set of results. uh, And certainly, as I mentioned, there's quite a lot of activity at an underlying basis. Very good. And finally, in, in the uh, property sector, we should just mention some news about UK Commercial Property REIT. That's a UKCM, one of the bigger trusts, one of the ones that have been trading at a significant discount. But uh, what's, what's the news from them? Yes, they announced that Will Fulton, the lead manager who's been responsible for this one since March 2015, he's going to take a, a temporary break from his role with UK Commercial Property while he undertakes a course of treatment for a medical condition. In his absence, Kerry Hunter, who's been appointed as the interim fund manager, she joins Jamie Horton as the deputy fund manager. Um, And Jamie Horton's been involved in this one for some time. So I think it's probably fair to say that we wish Will a speedy recovery and uh, hope he returns in the not too distant future. So that uh, brings us to the end of this week's uh, podcast. It's very good to have you back in the saddle for a second week. And uh, we're looking forward to these uh, exciting events over the next few weeks, as if the market does stay the way it's going. And uh, if they really have shrugged off this uh, potential news of the Fed taper, we uh, we should see a lot more fundraising. And maybe we'll see the market continue to go up. And uh, I guess that will be good for all of us. I should just mention that in the Moneymakers Circle, the, uh, the premium content, we have a profile of one of the uh, interesting Bailey Gifford funds, one that doesn't receive quite as much attention as others. I can leave you to find that out. And uh, in the coming weeks, we will be doing more interviews with interesting fund managers and uh, observers of the investment trust scene. So, Simon, thank you very much. And uh, I know you're a great cricket fan. We're looking forward to uh, seeing how this interesting test series goes between England and India. Indeed, it's almost as interesting as the markets. Surely not. Okay, well, that's it for this week and look forward to uh, speaking to you again next week. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. 
These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.